Section 15 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Wheel. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4, by James Boswell. Section 15. The Reverend Mr. Smith, vicar of Southwell, a very respectable man, with a very agreeable family, sent an invitation to us to drink tea. I remarked Dr. Johnson's very respectful politeness. Though always fond of changing the scene, he said, We must have Mr. Dilly's leave. We cannot go from your house, sir, without your permission. We all went, and were well satisfied with our visit. I, however, remember nothing particular, except a nice distinction which Dr. Johnson made with respect to the power of memory, maintaining that forgetfulness was a man's own fault. Footnote. Johnson maintains this in The Idler. Few, he says, have reason to complain of nature as unkindly sparing of the gifts of memory. The true art of memory is the art of attention. End of footnote. To remember, and to recollect, said he, are different things. A man has not the power to recollect what is not in his mind, but when a thing is in his mind, he may remember it. The remark was occasioned by my leaning back on a chair, which a little before I had perceived to be broken, and pleading forgetfulness in excuse, Sir, said he, its being broken was certainly in your mind. Footnote. The first of the definitions given by Johnson of to remember is to bear in mind anything, not to forget. To recollect, he defines to recover to memory. We may perhaps assume that Boswell said, I did not recollect that the chair was broken, and that Johnson replied, you mean, you did not remember. That you did not remember is your own fault. It was in your mind that it was broken, and therefore you ought to have remembered it. It was not a case of recollecting, for we recollect, that is, recover to memory, what is not in our mind. In the passage ante, which begins, I indeed doubt if he could have remembered, we find in the first two editions not remembered, but recollected. Perhaps this change is due to euphony, as collected comes a few lines before. Horace Walpole, in one of his letters, distinguishes the two words on his revisiting his old school, Eton. By the way, the clock strikes the old cracked sound. I recollect so much and remember so little. End of footnote. When I observed that a housebreaker was in general very timorous, Johnson, no wonder, sir, he is afraid of being shot getting into a house, or hanged when he has got out of it. He told us that he had in one day written six sheets of a translation from the French. Footnote. He made the same boast at St. Andrews. He was, I believe, speaking of his translation of Courier's Life of Paul Sarpy and Notes, of which some sheets were printed off. End of footnote. Adding, 
I should be glad to see it now. I wish that I had copies of all the pamphlets written against me, as it is said Pope had. Had I known that I should make so much noise in the world, I should have been at pains to collect them. I believe there is hardly a day in which there is not something about me in the newspapers. On Monday, June the 4th, we all went to Luton Hoe to see Lord Bute's magnificent seat, for which I had obtained a ticket. Footnote. Horace Walpole, after mentioning that George III's mother, who died in 1772, left but £27,000, when she was reckoned worth at least £300,000, adds, It is no wonder that it became the universal belief that she had wasted all on Lord Bute. This became still more probable, as he had made the purchase of the estate at Luton at the price of £114,000, before he was visibly worth £20,000, had built a palace there, another in town, and had furnished the former in the most expensive manner, bought pictures and books, and made a vast park and lake. End of footnote. As we entered the park, I talked in a high style of my old friendship with Lord Mount Stuart, and said, I shall probably be much at this place. Footnote. To him, Boswell dedicated his Thesis as Excelsi Familiae Debut Spei Alterae. In 1775, he wrote of him, he is warmly my friend, and has engaged to do for me. End of footnote. The sage, aware of human vicissitudes, gently checked me. Don't you be too sure of that. He made two or three peculiar observations, as when shown the botanical garden. Is not every garden a botanical garden? When told that there was a shrubbery to the extent of several miles, that is making a very foolish use of the ground. A little of it is very well. When it was proposed that we should walk on the pleasure ground, don't let us fatigue ourselves. Why should we walk there? Here's a fine tree. Let's get to the top of it. But upon the whole, he was very much pleased. He said, this is one of the places I do not regret having come to see. It is a very stately place. Indeed, in the house, magnificence is not sacrificed to convenience, nor convenience to magnificence. The library is very splendid, the dignity of the rooms is very great, and the quantity of pictures is beyond expectation, beyond hope. It happened without any previous concert that we visited the seat of Lord Bute upon the King's birthday. We dined and drank His Majesty's health at an inn in the village of Luton. In the evening I put him in mind of his promise to favour me with a copy of his celebrated letter to the Earl of Chesterfield, and he was at last pleased to comply with this earnest request, by dictating it to me from his memory, for he believed that he himself had no copy. Footnote. He was mistaken in this. End of footnote. There was an animated glow in his countenance, while he thus recalled his high-minded indignation. He laughed heartily at a ludicrous action in the court of session, in which I was counsel. The society of procurators, or attorneys, entitled to practice in the inferior courts at Edinburgh, had obtained a royal charter, in which they had taken care to have their ancient designation of procurators 
changed into that of solicitors, from a notion, as they supposed, that it was more genteel, and this new title they displayed by a public advertisement for a general meeting at their hall. Footnote. In England, in like manner, and perhaps for the same reason, all attorneys have been converted into solicitors. End of footnote. It has been said that the Scottish nation is not distinguished for humour, and indeed what happened on this occasion may in some degree justify this remark, for although this society had contrived to make themselves a very prominent object for the ridicule of such as might stoop to it, the only joke to which it gave rise was the following paragraph, sent to the newspaper called The Caledonian Mercury. A correspondent informs us that the worshipful society of Chaldeans, caddies, or running stationers of this city are resolved, in imitation, and encouraged by the singular success of their brethren, of an equally respectable society, to apply for a charter of their privileges, particularly of the sole privilege of procuring, in the most extensive sense of the word, exclusive of chairmen, porters, penny-postmen, and other inferior ranks, their brethren, the R-Y-L, S-LL-RS, alias P-C-RS, before the inferior courts of this city, always excepted. Should the worshipful society be successful, they are further resolved not to be puffed up thereby, but to demean themselves with more equanimity and decency than their R-Y-L, learned and very modest brethren above mentioned have done upon their late dignification and exaltation. A majority of the members of the society prosecuted Mr. Robertson, the publisher of the paper, for damages, and the first judgment of the whole court very wisely dismissed the action. Solventur risu tabulae tu missus abibis. But a new trial or review was granted upon a petition according to the forms in Scotland. This petition I was engaged to answer, and Dr. Johnson, with great alacrity, furnished me this evening with what follows. All injury is either of the person, the fortune, or the fame. Now it is a certain thing, it is proverbially known, that a jest breaks no bones. They never have gained half a crown less in the whole profession since this mischievous paragraph has appeared, and as to their reputation, what is their reputation but an instrument of getting money? If, therefore, they have lost no money, the question upon reputation may be answered by a very old position. De minimis non curat praetor. Whether there was or was not an animus injuriandi is not worth inquiring, if no injuria can be proved. But the truth is, there was no animus injuriandi. It was only an animus irritandi, which, happening to be exercised upon a genus irritabili, produced unexpected violence of resentment. Footnote. Mr. Robertson altered this word to jocandi, he having found in Blackstone that to irritate is actionable. Boswell. End of footnote. Their irritability arose only from an opinion of their own importance, and their delight in their new exaltation. What might have been borne by a procurator could not be borne by a solicitor. Your lordship's well known that honores mutant mores. Titles and dignities place strongly on their fancy. As a madman is apt to think himself grown suddenly great, 
so he that grows suddenly great is apt to borrow a little from the madman. To cooperate with their resentment would be to promote their frenzy, nor is it possible to guess to what they might proceed. If to the new title of solicitor should be added the elation of victory and triumph. We consider your lordships as the protectors of our rights and the guardians of our virtues, but believe it is not included in your high office that you should flatter our vices or solace our vanity, and as vanity only dictates this prosecution, it is humbly hoped your lordships will dismiss it. If every attempt, however light or ludicrous, to lessen another's reputation is to be punished by a judicial sentence, what punishment can be sufficiently severe for him who attempts to diminish the reputation of the Supreme Court of Justice, by reclaiming upon a cause already determined, without any change in the state of the question? Does it not imply hopes that the judges will change their opinion? Is not uncertainty and inconstancy in the highest degree disreputable to a court? Does it not suppose that the former judgment was temerarious or negligent? Does it not lessen the confidence of the public? Will it not be said that juice est out incognitum, out vagum? And will not the consequence be drawn misera est servitus? Will not the rules of action be obscure? Will not he who knows himself wrong today hope that the courts of justice will think him right tomorrow? Surely, my lords, these are attempts of dangerous tendency, which the solicitors, as men versed in the law, should have foreseen and avoided. It was natural for an ignorant printer to appeal from the Lord Ordinary, but from lawyers, the descendants of lawyers, who have practised for three hundred years and have now raised themselves to a higher denomination, it might be expected that they should know the reverence due to a judicial determination, and, having been once dismissed, should sit down in silence. I am ashamed to mention that the court, by a plurality of voices, without having a single additional circumstance before them, reversed their own judgment, made a serious matter of this dull and foolish joke, and adjudged Mr. Robertson to pay the society five pounds sterling money and costs of suit. The decision will seem strange to English lawyers. On Tuesday, June the 5th, Johnson was to return to London. He was very pleasant at breakfast. I mentioned a friend of mine having resolved never to marry a pretty woman. Johnson, sir, it is very foolish resolution to resolve not to marry a pretty woman. Beauty is of itself very estimable. No, sir, I would prefer a pretty woman, unless there are objections to her. A pretty woman may be foolish. A pretty woman may be wicked. A pretty woman may not like me. But there is no such danger in marrying a pretty woman as is apprehended. She will not be persecuted if she does not invite persecution. A pretty woman, if she has a mind to be wicked, can find a readier way than another, and that is all. I accompanied him in Mr. Tilly's chase to Shefford, where, talking of Lord Bute's never going to Scotland, he said, As an Englishman, I should wish all the Scotch gentlemen should be educated in England. Scotland would become a province. They would spend all their rents in England. This is a subject of much consequence and much delicacy. 
the advantage of an english education is unquestionably very great to scotch gentlemen of talents and ambition and regular visits to scotland and perhaps other means might be effectually used to prevent them from being totally estranged from their native country any more than a cumberland or northumberland gentleman who has been educated in the south of england i own indeed that it is no small misfortune for scotch gentlemen who have neither talents nor ambition to be educated in england where they may perhaps be distinguished only by a nickname lavish their fortune in giving expensive entertainments to those who laugh at them and saunter about as mere idle insignificant hangers-on even upon the foolish great when if they had been judiciously brought up at home they might have been comfortable and creditable members of society at shefford i had another affectionate parting from my revered friend who was taken up by the bedford coach and carried to the metropolis i went with monsieur dilly to see some friends at bedford dined with the officers of the militia of the county and next day proceeded on my journey to bennett langton esq dear sir how welcome your account of yourself and your invitation to your new house was to me i need not tell you who consider our friendship not only as formed by choice but as matured by time we have been now long enough acquainted to have many images in common and therefore to have a source of conversation which neither the learning nor the wit of a new companion can supply my lives are now published and if you will tell me whither i shall send them that they may come to you i will take care that you shall not be without them you will perhaps be glad to hear that mrs thrale is disencumbered of her brew-house and it seemed to the purchaser so far from an evil that he was content to give for it an hundred and thirty-five thousand pounds is the nation ruined please to make my respectful compliments to lady rothers and keep me in memory of all the little dear family particularly pretty mrs jane footnote his goddaughter end of footnote i am sir your affectionate humble servant sam johnson bolt court june the sixteenth seventeen eighty one johnson's charity to the poor was uniform and extensive both from inclination and principle he not only bestowed liberally out of his own purse but what is more difficult as well as rare would beg from others when he had proper objects in view this he did judiciously as well as humanely mr philip metcalf tells me that when he has asked him for some money for persons in distress and mr metcalf has offered what johnson thought too much he insisted on taking less saying no sir we must not pamper them i am indebted to mr malone one of sir joshua reynolds executors for the following note which was found among his papers after his death and which we may presume his unaffected modesty prevented him from communicating to me with the other letters from dr johnson with which he was pleased to furnish me however slight in itself as it does honour to that illustrious painter and most amiable man i am happy to introduce it to sir joshua reynolds dear sir it was not before yesterday that i received your splendid benefaction to a hand so liberal in distributing i hope nobody will envy the power of acquiring i am dear sir your obliged and most humble servant sam johnson june the twenty third seventeen eighty one 
To Thomas Astle, Esquire, Sir, I am ashamed that you have been forced to call so often for your books, but it has been by no fault on either side. They have never been out of my hands, nor have I ever been at home without seeing you, for to see a man so skilful in the antiquities of my country is an opportunity of improvement not willingly to be missed. Your notes on Alfred appear to me very judicious and accurate, but they are too few. Footnote. The will of King Alfred, alluded to in this letter, from the original Saxon, in the library of Mr. Astle, has been printed at the expense of the University of Oxford. Boswell. End footnote. Many things familiar to you are unknown to me and to most others, and you must not think too favourably of your readers by supposing them knowing. You will leave them ignorant. Measure of land and value of money, it is of great importance to state with care. Had the Saxons any gold coin? I have much curiosity after the manners and transactions of the Middle Ages, but have wanted either diligence or opportunity, or both. You, sir, have great opportunities, and I wish you both diligence and success. I am, sir, etc., Sam Johnson, July the 17th, 1781. The following curious anecdote I insert in Dr. Burney's own words. Dr. Burney related to Dr. Johnson the partiality which his writings had excited in a friend of Dr. Burney's, the late Mr. Bewley, well known in Norfolk by the name of the philosopher of Massingham, who, from the Ramblers, and the plan of his Dictionary, and long before the author's frame was established by the Dictionary itself, or any other work, had conceived such a reverence for him that he urgently begged Dr. Burney to give him the cover of the first letter he had received from him, as a relic of so estimable a writer. This was in 1755. In 1760, when Dr. Burney visited Dr. Johnson at the Temple in London, where he had then chambers, he happened to arrive there before he was up, and being shown into the room where he was to breakfast, finding himself alone, he examined the contents of the apartment to try whether he could undiscovered steal anything to send to his friend Bewley as another relic of the admirable Dr. Johnson but finding nothing better to his purpose, he cut some bristles off the hearth-broom, and enclosed them in a letter to his country enthusiast, who received them with due reverence. The doctor was so sensible of the honour done him by a man of genius and science, to whom he was an utter stranger, that he said to Dr. Burney, "'Sir, there is no man possessed of the smallest portion of modesty, but must be flattered with the admiration of such a man. I'll give him a set of my lives.' if he will do me the honour to accept of them. In this he kept his word, and Dr. Burney had not only the pleasure of gratifying his friend with a present more worthy of his acceptance than the segment from the hearth-broom, but soon after of introducing him to Dr. Johnson himself in Bolt Court, with whom he had the satisfaction of conversing a considerable time, not a fortnight before his death, which happened in St. Martin's Street, during his visit to Dr. Burney, in the house where the great Sir Isaac Newton had lived, and died before. In one of his little memorandum books is the following minute. August the 9th, 3pm, ITAT 72, in the summer-house at Streatham. After innumerable resolutions formed and neglected, I have retired hither to plan a life of greater diligence, in hope that I may yet be useful, and be daily better prepared to appear before my Creator and my Judge, from whose infinite mercy I humbly call for assistance and support. My purpose is 
to pass eight hours every day in some serious employment. Having prayed, I purpose to employ the next six weeks upon the Italian language for my settled study. How venerably pious does he appear in these moments of solitude, and how spirited are his resolutions for the improvement of his mind, even in elegant literature, at a very advanced period of life, and when afflicted with many complaints. Footnote. September the 14th, 1781. Dr. Johnson had been very unwell indeed. Once I was quite frightened about him, but he continues his strange discipline, starving, mercury, opium, and though for a time half demolished by its severity, he always in the end rises spirit both to the disease and the remedy, which commonly is the most alarming of the two. On September the 18th, his birthday, he wrote, As I came home from church, I thought I had never begun any period of life so placidly. I have always been accustomed to let this day pass unnoticed, but it came this time into my mind that some little festivity was not improper. I had a dinner and invited Alan and Levitt. End of footnote. End of section 15.